Give and Take. It's a podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, authors, theologians, political pundits, media people, and assorted others about the lens through which they experience life. My guest today is Duo Dickinson. Duo opened up his own architectural practice in 1987. His work has received more than 30 awards, including the 2015 Sacred Landscape Award from the Interfaith Forum on Religion, Art, and Architecture. His design work has been published in more than 70 publications, including the New York Times Architectural Record and House Beautiful. His blog, Saved by Design, gets so much traffic it needs its own stoplight. He's written a number of books and hosts the radio series homepage on WPKN Radio. He's also a friend, and we talk a little bit about architecture and what it tells us about modern life and who we are as consumers and home dwellers. I give you my friend, Duo Dickinson. Duo Dickinson, welcome to the podcast, my friend. Scott, this is an amazing confluence of abilities and information. Absolutely. And you know, we have a mutual friend in Ohio that calls you the quiet storm. (laughs) I, I think you're more like a thunderstorm. I've actually, he's the only human I've ever known that has called me quiet. And I think it's because I'm quiet when I'm being read. Or, or, or you might be like the dark and stormy. <laughs> Do you like dark and stormy? That's an unusual cocktail. It's a little too sweet for me. I have to have some, some guilt. <laughs> You're like, so you'd like a little more uh, 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 salt than sweet. Yeah, or at least a little sense that I'm being braced as opposed to loved. So, you Duo, I, you've written a bunch of interesting stuff lately, but I want to ask you a few questions about architecture. Sure, you absolutely. You are an architecture, and your personal <laughs> blogging spot and website is called Saved by Design, which I'm sure is a double entendre, as they say. Yeah, maybe triple or nothing, yeah. Well, what's an entendre if it's not a triple shot? I mean, really. Yeah, exactly. Or if it's just meaningless with a high quotient of affect. So here's what my question. So architecture mm. is something that is a, a hugely aesthetic reality, right? It's an art form, arguably, like as, as much as any piece of visual art. And yet it's probably the one we think about least, people that aren't architects. Right. And... It's probably the one that most people are ill-equipped to interpret the art in front of them. <laughs> and they also, uh, like the famous, you know, uh, Supreme Court uh, edict that said, I, you know, I, I know porn when I see it. And the truth is, everybody who is a human being uses architecture every day. And the only other three things that a human being does every day is, you know, eating or drinking or breathing or putting clothes on what about ra- know- what about rationalizing rationalizations well that's if you're sentient you know i think there are a lot of people binge watch and they don't even know enough to rationalize binge watching <laughs> but but i do but i do think that architecture is in a in a horrifically conflicted state in that it is um without question one of the most elemental realities of the human condition you've got to be protected from the elements and at the same time if you're a human being you want to be proud of what you are in and often what you're you've created which is why the website house has i think it's over a million hits a day and it's it's why humans endlessly 
uh, support things like Lowe's and, and Home Depot because they want to have control over where they live and everybody lives somewhere. And it's why corporations like Google are spending an infinite amount of money making what they perceive to be a perfect building. And they're just the latest in a long line. There's a General Foods headquarters done by Kevin Roche in Westchester County, which was intended at the time to be essentially like the world headquarters of corporate America. And within 20 years, it was seen to be useless. And now with the internet, many of these huge corporate campuses that were created as the natural extension as suburbia went away from cities, the the corporations followed and you had this idea of this remote uncitied corporate entity, that's all gone away now. And most corporate entities really exist mostly on the internet for most people. And unfortunately, architecture is trending to, for most people, be appreciated on the internet. And that means that the net effect of being an architect is being changed from a building-oriented profession to a appreciation-oriented elite. And it's very hard to say that to kids that are going to school, and there are 26,000 of them, that when they graduate, and there'll be six or seven that graduate, six or 7,000 that graduate, that there are so few jobs for them because the internet and technology and software has taken what they do and made it far less important in terms of man hours. And there's less building going on than there was 10 years ago. So the fact that it's a depressed profession and a universal profession, it makes it into almost an impossible conflict of desire and reality. People desire to be architects. One of the most popular ways of expressing that you want to do something in the world that's artful, beautiful, but also pragmatic and practical and a hard-edged gift. But the truth is architecture, to do that, means you've got to actually know how to build things. And what's transmogrified is that for a lot of people, architecture is what you can create in cyberspace on the screen. But what, and, there's only like, I, I've just read this recently. I heard it in an interview or something. There, there's only like a hundred some thousand architects in the country, right? I mean, well, there, there are about 200,000 that have degrees and there are about 110,000 that are, are licensed. And there are about 80,000, which are in the AIA. And I was just made a fellow in the AIA, which is one of 3,000 architects in the country that are old enough or have done enough that the AIA cares to give them the title fellow. For you're so, a jolly good fellow in that. Well, yeah. I, I mean. <laughs> it also casts some aspersions on the concept of fellowship, which, as you know, in church speak means uh, not punching someone. So, <laughs> But so now that being said, there's a lot of building going on. More There's than probably built- eighty thousand or so licensed architects. So, right. what about the buildings that are going up all the time, all across the country, that are not made by someone that's licensed? How do they? Is there sort of how are those made? Is there is it mass planning or how, how does that how does that happen? That's you hit upon a question which makes America different from the rest of the world. I often am amused when people say America should have a healthcare system like Scandinavia, or America should have an education system like England, or America should have uh, a life expectancy of Switzerland. And America is a bizarre, unique entity for good or for ill, but it has 50 states. And in the 50 states, there's every level of regulation present in each and every one of the states, 
which either says you've got to have an architect to uh, essentially hang a closet door, which is what New York City says, or it says, like Vermont says, unless it's a public building, anybody can design anything anywhere. And so some some places of public building, a place of public accommodation where there's public safety involved, you need somebody. And there's often the out where you can hire an engineer to do this. If there isn't an aesthetic component. An engineer can stamp a set of drawings. They can build anything. And in, for houses, you know, there are maybe a million houses being built every year. And that's the largest category of any built thing that goes that gets made every year. It was down to 300,000 about seven years ago. It was around 3 million around 12 years ago. But right now we're about a million. 95% of those buildings, 95, and that's being generous, it could even be 98, do not have a licensed architect with them at all. They have stock designs. They're not places of public accommodation. There are zillions of designs on the internet, and the vast majority of homes are built by about seven or eight house companies like Pulte and and uh, other other national companies that end up making most homes, new homes that people live in. And the vast number of renovations have even fewer architects involved because you go to a contractor and they say, oh, we'll take this wall out. They have to config, go to the town or the state or, the, or, the, or in most cases the county and say, I'm putting in this beam. But that doesn't require an architect. That requires an engineer or even a, or even a company that supplies the beams as a software service that sizes the beam for you. So the, the aspirations of architects are almost universal. They're like theologians or, or, or people that, that want to be uh, preach. They have a gigantic appeal to the humans that are, that are actually doing it. But the truth is, to the culture, a tiny, tiny percent of what we do, a tiny percent, ends up getting venerated for the vast number of people. And the vast amount that's done doesn't involve architects and isn't venerated and isn't even noticed by people. I was just driving in to pick up the microphone that I'm talking to you on. I was just driving through the one of the miracle miles in central Connecticut. And I was noticing that over the last generation, virtually every chain store has completely homogenized the way it looks so that every McDonald's is the same. Every Five Guys is the same. Everything is the same. And it's because there's a design standard and there's a set of drawings, maybe touched by an architect at the beginning, but now that's a, a, a copyrighted design entity and it's just being replicated, absent context, site, user, anything except speed, efficiency, and image. And so that level of oversimplification makes architecture into a really brutal profession for people. And I think the good news is, a little bit like religion, the good news is that the bad times of architecture and the bad times of religion, especially religion in the Northeast, they're making very smart people look at the professions and say, how have we changed? Where are we changing to? And what will it be like in a generation? And so there are lots of articles about it, so... When you, you know, it's interesting, the kind of new urbanism came about, right, yeah. uh, some number of years ago, and that's sort of, it's not necessarily urban, like, dense metropolitan population centers, but it's it's sort of getting people, in, instead of sprawlish kind of condominiums on a golf course or something, it's let's have streets that are with houses on both sides of them facing each other, and let's be able to walk, yeah. you, you know, to town centers and things like that yeah. for to Creek Creek more community what what trends are you see on the horizon as far as where people want to live how they want to live you know given i mean is the new urbanism still the thing or is it a thing among several 
that are totally kicking around. Totally. And, and, and New Urbanism was what the biggest lie in maybe in human culture, I think, is that the vast majority of human things, whether it's architecture or food or, or clothing, are viewed to be things that make people do things. The great Winston Churchill quotes, we make our buildings and then they make us, is a canard. It's just not true. We, as, as a species, have visceral and educated, but mostly visceral responses to things. And so we had a visceral response to urban renewal. When they tore down neighborhoods and built blocks of housing, or they tore down neighborhoods, made gigantic streets, or they tore down neighborhoods, built highways, and you couldn't see the water anymore. Those were such antithetical, just screw you fabrications for most people that the idea that was really promulgated by Duane Platter Zyberg, the architecture office down in Florida, and Andreas Duane in particular, and based on the work of Robert Venturi, who was an incredible, and his wife, Denise Scott Brown, who were incredible uh, sort of clarion calls in the 60s that said, wait a minute, wait a minute, design isn't just, design isn't just pretty stuff. Design is about culture. There's a cultural component to all of this. So when they did that, it, it, it rang true. And, and so you saw many suburbs change. You saw many planned communities happen, especially starting in Maryland. And now and there's, there's New Albany and Ohio, and there's, there's uh, the, the village and Disney uh, celebration. Those are these radical examples of complete control to de-tract um, house and de-urban renewalize these small urban environments where there are sidewalks, trees, porches, smaller lots, back buildings. There's an entire lexicon of rules to essentially humanize where people live. The latest trend, though, Scott, and actually you're the generation, because you're, what, 12 or 14 years old. Um, the, the, you're supposed to laugh when I say that. <laughs> well, so, I mean, emotionally, um, I would say that. Well, I know. But, 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 the, but the reality is that, that, that your generation, my kids generation and actually my generation skipping over the entire middle zone of people that are 40 50 and in that area but they're still have kids at home but empty nesters and people that have not had children yet are awakening to the fact the vast majority of suburbia just doesn't even relate to them they don't want to drive a car they don't want to mow a lawn they don't want to have to you know, go to a mall to, to purchase something. They want to be able to walk. They want to be able to park a car or not have a car, and they want to do something in a city. So New Haven, which is a weird little town, it's really based in on Yale, but it's also got its own thing going, has this minor housing boom where over the next two or three years, we'll build another three or 4,000 at market rate high-priced rental units, having already just in the last three or five years built four or 5,000 rental units in a city there's maybe 120,000 people, maybe 110. They built 10% of the housing stock in one decade. That's insane. And it really has only happened because people are not deciding to live in, 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 in the city and, and filling up things. They are actually tearing some stuff down and changing the nature of the city to have larger rental units where people have amenities like gyms and and even restaurants and can and can walk to work and 
in that way, New Haven's responding to Yale that hires people that want to do that or has or has people there that want to do that, like professors that are older that don't have kids. And I could see in your generation, in 20 years, not too many suburban new houses being built. Some, there will always be people that want to have a, you know, two or three acres or an acre of land, but there'll be far fewer. And there'll be more stuff happening in cities or at the edges of cities where you can walk. And I think that is in direct response to the fact that we feel, I don't know about you, but I can tell you, I feel shortchanged by popular culture. I feel a lack of control. I feel essentially like flotsam and jetsam. There's a lot of stuff happening all around me. And I just feel victimized by the fact that things happen that we don't understand, are not affected by our dislike of them or even our like of them. And we are essentially left to be viewers. And it's a, it's a, it's a, it, it's it's hard to be a viewer because you really can't change the the channel you're watching while you're viewing it. And we can't. As a consumer, I mean, there's one level, right, where we're we're sold in in sort of neoliberal, you know, late modern capitalism. We're sold this notion that really we're totally in control. All these consumer choices that you know, I shop <laughs> yeah. there for. Yeah, I, I can sort of I can sort of hand design my entire existential external reality. But in reality, the, the, the choices given to us <laughs> are, you know, it, it's sort of like, we're, we're, you know, they, I remember when I was, I was selling cars after college and this guy who was, his company went bankrupt because the president embezzled, it was a macadamia in that company. And this guy was a great salesman and he was selling cars for a little while. And he taught me so many things, like, an engineering controlling type. What do you do? Here's what you do. Do you want power windows or not? So just keep putting two the type A controller. Yeah. Keep putting two choices from him, so he thinks he's in control, and then he feels it's really your good. car. Yeah, it's right. Your so, car. Exactly. So I mean, but that is what the market does to us, right? I mean, on some level, <laughs> it creates a pseudo control that really maybe we don't have. It's this is probably why when people wake up to the matrix like you are, and you're like, oh my gosh, I feel most people just ignorance is bliss. It plug me back in. <laughs> well, and and. What a broadcast like this can do, because it's not going to be listened to mostly by architects, it's going to be listening to people that, that want to think about things. What a broadcast like this can do is essentially alert people to the fact that their vague dissatisfaction, like Nemo in The Matrix, their vague dissatisfaction or their vague sense of misfit is really acknowledged and owned by a significant percentage of architects. And that percentage, while a minority, has a great number of people in it that say, we want to build things that are used and loved by people and the people who aren't architects. So if you go on to, I mean, I have an article out yesterday that was, or day before yesterday, that was an amazing breakthrough article in that it's in it's in um, a, a web publication called Arch Daily. They are a huge number of readers, but it's very traditionally and safely modern, safely modernist, safely architect centric. And the idea of the article is essentially uh, about, and it's got a very, very long title, and I, I don't even remember what they titled it, but it was essentially about the fact that there there's been 10 years where there's less building technology right, done 10 years on how yep. the recession has proven architecture's value value and yes. shown us architects folly and and the bottom line is that by not building as much and by having people that liked building and by seeing all these young graduates coming out who have no emphasis on building things a lot of people are saying wait a minute uh 
the the internet maybe has made things cheaper and more efficient and quicker and the the new technology of not just CAD drawing it's been around for 25 years but BIM which is a a building systems thing where you can actually put it to type in a type of building type in a type of structure put in the the site and a, the building will literally i mean the the software will literally create a building independent of the human hand. It is artificial intelligence. And we see that happening with drawings that are so seductive and so interesting that for architects, it's literally porn. It's they're they're looking at this thing and getting just excited by the complexity and the ironies and the coolness and the the wovenness of it all. And for most people, the buildings that result are actually untouchable. They are not much. And for an empirical design sense, nothing is being questioned. It's just being implemented because the questions have all been answered in the software and things get replicated. And so when I have an engineer try to put a structure into a design I've done and it comes back as a BIM or a Revit is another one of these things, Revit construction, there are many, many, many unconsidered questions because they just simply take the plan they take a, a modality, they plug it in, and it makes a building which nominally might work, but really is inefficient, usually too expensive, and has almost no expression of what the structure is or any visual interest for the person who happens to be in the structure. It's just basically a machine's way of using what's been done before to make something which is is deniable. And, you know, probably more than anybody that I know, I would ask you to think about the idea, because I've been thinking about this a lot in the Trump presidency, the the idea in all cultural aspects of deniability, of having essentially met the minimum standards or having hit the mark and being able to say, well, I did that. Well, I did that. You know, well, I did put a make a special prosecutor, a special investigator and really bypassing all the larger meanings of say what makes America or I, 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 the building works in Revit. You're not thinking about what is the best the building can be. And the phrase highest and best use, which is used in land in, 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 uh, in uh, real property lingo and parlance, highest and best use is almost, is an antipode for deniability. And I think technology has maybe taking human desire for excellence and subverting it into a desire for deniability that we've done everything we can. Don't ask any questions. Your questions are moot because this has been signed off on by Revit or BIM or AutoCAD. That's what architects do. And so you could make a case that except for some maybe a hundred superstar architects, less true innovation and diversity in architectural expression is happening now than at any time in my 61 years of architecture. Is that because generally you like people that are innovators master a tradition, right? Like Picasso doesn't start doing anti-real stuff. He, right. he masters the tradition. Is, and is it because now fewer people master or even engage their tradition deeply because it's all being automated? So you, you, well, of, you, you are absolutely correct, but there's a darker aspect of this and something that your listeners should really think about for a second. It's not just that the, the co-opting of course has happened because co-opting is easy and people don't even know they're doing it. So they're, they're being co-opted in, in, on Moss by basically having literally, there are 40,000 kids that are taking the architectural licensing exam. Now the highest number in history, because there's less need to do it. And it's all done on the computer and it's actually 
this sort of do loop where maybe it will take 10 or 20 years to get licensed to, to, to have your own sign on a public building as you are the architect because you aren't an architect till you pass the exam. So, so that's over there. But, but that co-opting, that diminution of building as a, as a criteria for excellence is directly pivoting off in 5 or 10% of the architecture world into a radical, and I do mean radical, uh, almost Luddite fraction that basically says the only good building has been built before. Classicism, traditional architecture, now has Notre Dame, now has the University of Chicago, now, sorry, Catholic University, now has um, Colorado, University of Colorado. There are three or four programs which are now devoted to one stylistic approach, which is not just stylistic, it's actually ethical. And the idea that new things are inherently corrupt, new things are inherently a lie, new things are empirically ugly. That is this weird little mirror to the general sense in the architecture world that anything that was traditional, that anything that had been built before, that anything that had any taint of the vernacular in it was were pandering you know, solipsistic, just non-starters if you were truly innovative and thoughtful. So what it's setting up is this technological shift and this lack of economic impetus is setting up these impossible answers. Because a thoughtful person does not does not say a style is the key to expression. They say expression is keyed to need. So if you don't understand the need, your expression is flawed. And yeah. need is and need isn't just like I've got to walk up steps to get to the second floor. It's I'm in a neighborhood of three story buildings facing the water, and the wind blows from the south. That's a that that's this general need and. Both traditional architecture and modern architecture says, well, that's fine, but I want to build, modern guy says, I want to build a white cube. Traditional guy says, oh, I want to have a temple of Dendor here. So the, the fact that architects are really often really tone deaf and really looking at themselves and designing for other architects is flies in the face of it being, you know, one of the big three, food, shelter, and clothing. It just flies in that face. And that conflict is is deep and resonant. And people don't like it in my profession when I say it because I write books and I, I do articles and I give talks. It is disturbing to them. And it's disturbing to them. A very good example of the disturbance and at the core of all of this is that, you know, there's Penn Station in New York, which might be the single worst building ever built by man for the use. You know, there's the new, the quote unquote new Penn Station done in 68. And it basically had Madison Square Garden and the small office tower and this rat hole of a train station. And it used a terrible, awful, and it's all breaking and nothing's working and it might be shut down for part of the year. Well, Cuomo, the governor, the sort of glad handing, how do I get credit for everything, says, well, we're going to spend hundred million dollars or X millions of dollars on the stadium station. And we're going to make it better. These architects out of Brooklyn and I forget their name now, even now have a new website and they say, well, across the street, let's just, let's just completely rebuild the old Penn station, which was the one that was torn down in 63. They created the whole historic preservationist movement, but we can do the exact same Kim Eden white building brought up into today because the technology now allows you to essentially mimic anything and everything. So you can make a totally mimetic structure, one that is there before, you know, it's right because you've had it before. And so 
this big proposal comes out, and I write a piece in Common Edge, which is a wonderful blog, and I say that's literally running to the past. That's basically saying it's taking your fears and saying, I am so afraid, I won't trust anything new. I'm only going to trust something I've seen before. And I got wailed on for that, very much told that I was a a, a shallow-thinking bad person until I began to say to these people in these long, bloggy things, I began to say to them, well, that means that there's no, zero, not one, traditional classicist architect that can't make a new building that is not an exact Xerox in McKinney and White's building. You can't, so it's not about style, it's about safety and surety and being a Luddite. I don't want new things. New things are dangerous, they hurt me. And whereas in the modernist approach, the thing that made the horrible Penn Station was nothing you've ever ever had before is good. I'm going to present you something that's new. We'll have this really cool, horizontal, low-level train station, and we'll all make a lot of money because I'll put Madison Square Garden on top of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. There's a book that came out recently called The Benedict Option, which is written by a guy named Rod Dreher, who writes for the American Conservative. And it's made the ra- it's, it's, it made the rounds and it, it's being talked about everywhere. But the thesis is really not that much of a new one in that, you know, Alistair McIntyre, the philosopher who's Marxist, became Roman Catholic Thomist. Mm. He wrote a book called After Virtue years ago and basically said, you know, late modern capitalism is a uniquely awful place that makes really shitty people and the church mm. needs to sort of form monastery type like Benedict realized because oh. the church can't really exist in the world without it. You know, it, it really, you got to choose Nietzsche or Aristotle and we got to, the church has to come back. So, so, you know, so you see this kind of like this kind of an, an extreme kind of, uh, anti-traditional late modern capitalism it yes. breeds a kind of extreme traditionalism. Like we've got, you got to, we got to pull up the, you know, we got to, you know, pull up the moat, pull the bridge up and just wait the storm out but you know before the world kills the church and i think what you're saying is there's something maybe for the church and architecture in common to avoid this tendency to uh sort of lionize and demonize either lionize the the present and demonize the past or demonize uh modern innovation and lionize the past but there's this kind of tension creative tension that, that has to be held between the tradition and innovation well, I think there's one constant reality, and and the older I am, the more I know I know this is true. This is undeniably true, that most people, most of the time, I would say all people, most of the time, have one primary goal, which is to be lazy. They <laughs> they, they they essentially want to have their facts known, which is why Fox News and why MSNBC and is is so ossified and calcified in its its pat known virtually religious answer of canon law that x is good y is bad and they're totally inverted from the two we want that of everything so a classicist architect says i can design this thing perfectly because there are rules done by dead buildings modernist architect can say i can design this thing because it's never been done before and look at how cool it is it's just different and new and strange, and I'm changing everything. And and if I didn't make it new and rejectionist and old and and wild, I would be, I would be a pandering, old school person who is intellectually bankrupt. So, the truth lies in between. The truth is that the widest diversity, the largest bandwidth. The most things you can consider when you're thinking about a building 
always makes a better building. So it doesn't mean it's diluted or it's corrupt or it's artificial. If you, I mean, you've seen the work that I've done. It's too modern to be called traditional, and it's too traditional to be called modern because it takes its cues from the clients first, the site second, and essentially affordability. So we build 80% of what we start. We built over 700 things because we take a long, hard look and we take longer to design things so that it incorporates more things. That's not lazy. It's just easier to be lazy. It's easier. Ease is what humans aspire to. They like Velcro. They don't like buttons. They want to be able <laughs> they they like stretch sweatpants. They don't want any fasteners. They want something which when they slip it on, it feels good and they just go. Jaggings. Yeah, and I think that that is indirect choreographed either encouragement or maybe even maybe even the, the initiation of technology that is answering all the questions. I, I saw a thing on NPR last night that said, well, this software is great. You'll be able to put it on your your phone and you can you can type in your product. It will tell you where it is in the store. And then when you're in the store, it will tell you what aisle and shelf it is on. Nice. <laughs> so, so this is the human desire, which is simply not to think. And that works for many things, but it surely does not work for architecture, and it surely doesn't work for religion. And yet people want to believe in something, and people are always in some building. And universally, we all have homes. So oh, I would love to talk with you over the next few months about the human nature as it responds to buildings and faith, because that to me is the great issue. I visited Grace Church a couple of weeks ago and wrote about it and got an enormous number of hits on my website about this, about the fact that it is both meeting house and cathedral and architectural tourism. And it's sort of none of them all. And it's, it, it's a, it's a building that says I'm open to all, but to visit it, I had to show, show people and give people my driver's license. <laughs> Dude, before you, I know you got to go in a couple of minutes. I, I got to go in a couple minutes. I want, I want to ask you. you one thing. How yes. have you been saved by design? And in what sense has design saved? Oh, God, man. Oh, man. I would, this is, an, this is a, probably a, a bad thing to say because it's, it's very indictable. Let me get my Twitter feed up. Wait, wait, wait. Get your Twitter feed up. This is bad. I'll, I'll catch heat for this. But there's a flip side to ease. The flip side to ease is power. Power is essentially the successful manifestation of control. So when I say saved by design, it's not the passive thing of having a good roof that doesn't leak, although that's part of it. It's not living in a house that you're proud of, but that's part of it. When you're saved by design, you feel in you the power that you matter, that you're not the flotsam and jetsam that's being sort of slid in and out with every pide, uh, every tide or every river flow. You're actually part of the construction and the beauty of the world around you because you've been listened to and responded to classicism and modernism don't do that they say you are a you you are essentially looking at us and responding to us and that's not the vast majority of humans hmm. duo thank you so much for taking some time and we'll do it again soon because we have many yeah. 
Miles, and I have a, before we sleep. And I have a new microphone. So I, if exactly. I have a new microphone, you might be the only one I would ever use it for. You, so. you sound great. You absolutely sound great. <laughs> Scott, you are a gift. And your, your, your sort of transcendent connection between all these different platforms of belief and technology is much, much needed. So keep doing this. You are too kind, my friend. And thank you. The quiet storm. Not who does not like dark and stormies. <laughs> God bless. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you like what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds, go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And please do check out Duo's work. Saved by Design, his blog is a great place to start. Savedbydesign.wordpress.com. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, fare thee well.